Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the (laughs) cock-ups. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, this one's got me intrigued because it's someone I don't think I've really heard of before, but I might have. That's right. So today, guys, we're talking about one of the great historians, um, but also very much an unsung hero. I want to talk about a guy called Leo Africanus. Okay. Rings a few yeah, it, does, it usually rings a few bills, but unfortunately, that's often as far as it gets. Whereas I think if you look at him properly, he's emblematic, really, of his whole age and because he brings together so many different strands of history. That's why I particularly like him. But also, he lets us, as his name suggests, delve into the history of Africa, which we haven't got to yet no. on the series. Now, so we're starting in 1494, okay? Right. So this guy is Leo Africanus, but he's born... Al Hassan ibn Muhammad al Wazan al Farzi. So, what exactly is he? An Islamic explorer? Yes and no. He's born in Granada in Spain. Now, right. 1494, that might give you an idea of the age we're in because we're talking Spain's big change, age of exploration, of course, with Columbus, but also. 1492. You've got Isabel and Ferdinand, and they expel... Uh, The Reconquista, exactly. They expel the Muslims from Spain. So his whole family moves to Fez. Interestingly, by the way, Mikey, it's not just the Muslims that get kicked out in 1492. It's also all the Jews get uh, wiped out of the whole um, Iberian Peninsula. A lot of them end up in Constantinople. Indeed, which is another episode. But there we go. So... um, Leo Africanus, his father is a diplomat, okay, right. and he's uh, working for the Sultan of Fez. Well, they make the hats. The nice hats, and they're very smelly leather works, actually, Mikey, if you ever go there. Yes, because we all know what the main solution is for tanning. <laughs> yeah, not so good. All right, so this guy, Africanus, he does a lot of travelling with his dad, and then he himself, he becomes a diplomat. But unfortunately, while he's doing on these diplomatic missions, he gets captured right. by the Spanish pirates. Hang on, yeah. There, and he's on his way back from Egypt. Now, normally, if you get captured by Spanish pirates. It's, it's, it, that's it. It's all over your you know, galley slave or something like that for the rest of your life. But these pirates, they realise just you know, what a smart guy they've got on their hands. So they take him back to Italy. Because right. he's, he's a gifted man. He's multilingual. Yeah, a complete scholar. And so they hand him over to the Pope, yeah, to Pope Leo X. And Pope Leo X said, okay, yes, yeah, he, he recognises his talent straight away. Yeah. He frees him yeah, from, his, from, from slavery and as a sort of token of you know, goodwill, uh, Africanus converts to Christianity um, from so, Islam. So he no longer has his, his, his Islamic name. No, and he changes his name to Leo as a sort of thank you to the Pope. So he works now for the papacy. He works for the Pope in Rome. He does things like he, he makes a brilliant um, translation of an Arabic, Hebrew, Latin medical dictionary. Um, he advises the Pope like Leo and then Leo's successor, his cousin, Clement VII, about North African affairs and all these kind of things. 
But the reason why he's gone down in history yeah. is because he writes his magnus opus, which is the Descriptione dell'Africa, the description of Africa. Now, this is where I think I've heard his name before. Right. Now, I'll be honest, folks. I may have done a little bit of digging here. Because, you know, I, I did drama at uni as opposed yes. to history. And we're talking about Shakespeare. Mm. Well, you know, as you, Matt, you know your Shakespeare. All these influence, various things, you know, Greek tales, Roman tales, mm-hmm. Scandinavian yep. tales, Plutarch for the histories. Well... Here's the thing. You talk about this guy's book, Africanus' book. Yeah. It's, it's an international bestseller all through Europe. That's right. Not just geographers. Everyone's, yeah, it's a real bestseller. It's like a Marco Polo's travels, yeah. In the year 1600, mm-hmm. a bloke called John Pory mm-hmm. translates it into English in London. Right. And, well, this may be a character from Shakespeare that bears some resemblance ah. to your character, Africanus. Yes, of okay, course. So, so, so 1600, the book's translated yeah. into English. Othello. Comes yeah. out in 1604. Right, okay. And, and also to the fact is, you know, as we said before, Shakespeare wears his influences on his sleeve. Mm. Well, bits, bits of Africanus' book also turn up in The Tempest. But, ah, okay, but how's, right. how's this for parallels? Yeah. Okay, you're made Africanus and Othello, both born into Islam and convert to Christianity. Mm. Um, Africanus, in poor translation, survived many thousand of imminent dangers. Mm. Othello speaks about how he had hairbreadth escapes in the imminent deadly breach. Mm. They're both sold into slavery and escaped. So, so yes, the parallels yes. between Othello and Africanus, but they're not just broad brushstrokes. They are very, very detailed. And that's the thing, Mikey, because this book, this Discutione dell'Africa, is, is an incredibly detailed book, um, mostly about the, the Barbary Coast, the North Coast, the Maghreb, you know, the Nile Valley, and which what at this time, of course, was the Ottoman Nile Empire. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but what's so interesting about it is it also goes into great detail about sub-Saharan Africa, because yeah, very, very little was known about that in the period. There's been mysteries, there's been legends over the years, like Pres- to John, the mythical Christian king on the other side. And, he, and let's get this straight. He was just a complete bit of mysticism, shall we say. He was, yeah. He did, never existed. Yeah. Um, but uh, what did exist in, in West Africa, you've got the Guinea coast, uh, you've got the Gold Coast, which is <laughs> oh, no, it's not. nowadays Ghana, not surface <laughs> yeah. paradise. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. There were no schoolies in 15th century Ghana. <laughs> yeah, and today it's, yeah, you got the Ivory Coast, Togo and Benin. And as the names suggest, yeah, there was a lot of gold and ivory to be had. And Europe became obsessed, you know, with Africa and what was, what was to be had from exploration, as we said, with the Portuguese leading it. But it's also home to a legendary city, one that's gone down in history, probably one of the most romantic, exotic names of all time, Timbuktu. Okay, today we're talking about the incredible diplomat, writer, a guy called Leo Africanus, and, mm-hmm. and his, inc- his groundbreaking book that actually explained various parts of Africa to Europe that they'd never heard of before. That's right, Mikey. Yeah, so, um, and of course... Oh, okay, here we go. Paul, get your maps out. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So, uh, like we mentioned before, we're talking also about Timbuktu. Now, why is Timbuktu so special? Have a look at my map. Thank you, Mikey. Actually, so, actually that just sounded a bit sleazy, but I will look. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay. So, here we got it. This is West Africa, okay? Right. You can see the whole area is sort of bound together by this big snaking, enormous river, the River Niger, which, of course, you know, ends in Nigeria. Now, long before the Brits and the French got down to West 
Africa and started divvying it up. Yeah, who's controlling it then? Well, the Arabs, of yes. course, you know, they came through um, overland, interestingly enough. But even before that, um, in the ancient times, you know, you've got the Phoenicians who would sail either to the north coast, um, like Tunisia, or through the Pillars of Hercules around the corner. Mm. But you've also got... The Egyptians, in fact, the Egyptians were sending explorers down there, even during the Old Kingdom. In fact, one of my, my wackiest favourite pharaohs of all time, he's a bit of a nut job. Yeah. Uh, Pepe, Pepe the Oh, yeah. yeah. He used to send uh, groups down there because he was a little more than obsessed with pygmies. But that's a story for another day. But, yeah. Yeah, but, but the important thing yeah. is, there's this West Africa, it wasn't... Um, completely unknown to everybody before the Europeans came because there were people who had yeah. been going down, particularly overland. But of course, you got the Sahara Desert in the way. That Which was a problem. Which is a tough thing to get through, mate. Yeah, but the, yeah, but it was worth it because West Africa was home to such enormous amounts of gold and ivory. Okay, man, let's be honest. It wasn't just gold and ivory. They were trading something else as well. Yeah, of course, there's also slaves, right? So look at the top of the arc, if you like, of yeah. that river, Mikey, that Niger River. Now, this is Mali. This is above uh, Burkina Faso, which you know, used to be Upper Volta. Now, this is important because this is where the river gets right close to the edge of the Saharan Desert. Right. Okay? Now, as you said, you've got these you know, from the Phoenician times, Egyptian times, and then the Arabs. You've got some people making their way over the Sahara because it's worth it because there is so much trade available. Yeah. And settlements start to spring up. And by the 12th century, here, yeah. right here, right at the top of that arc, is Timbuktu. The okay. mythical city of Timbuktu. That, that's right. It becomes, if you like, the southern terminus for all the trans-Saharan trade routes, you know, whether it's camel caravan, slave trade, gold, doesn't matter. So, so you're saying trade? Yeah. Are they, are they wealthy? Rolling in it. They're selling all this gold and ivory and slaves up to um, the north coast of Africa and onto Europe, mm-hmm. yeah, and in return bringing all the European stuff down to Africa. Yeah, they are the classic middleman. Yeah, and so this whole empire in this region is, it becomes what's called the the Mali Empire, uh, and there might be a few of those leaders you might have heard of. For example, Mansa Musa. Yeah, um, I have heard who, of him, and I and I know why I've heard of him. Yes, well, he, he he's gone down in history, hasn't he? Is potentially the richest man ever to have lived. You Take know. that, Bezos! <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, Mansa Musa, he was one of the emperors of the Mali Empire. He visits Timbuktu in 1325, because by the 14th century, Timbuktu really has become Africa's shining star, the jewel in the crown. It's part of the Mali Empire, then it becomes part of the Tuareg tribes um, of the Sahara, part of their empire, then the Songhai Empire, but really, it's pretty much its own independent city-state. Because it's so wealthy. Because it's so wealthy on its own terms, until, of course, the whole region gets eclipsed later on by the riches coming out of the New World. That's the age that I want to talk about, those sort of 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, which has gone down as the golden age, if you like, for Timbuktu. It's when all their stars aligned, you see. You've got, um, you've got obviously, you've got this river, so they, they cut these canals so right. they, they make sure that when there's any, the, the annual flood of the river, they, you know, ah. bit like, you know, like you did in, in Egypt. With, with, with the Nile, With yes. the Nile, that's yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, the, yeah, they ensure that they get a bit more fertile land so they can grow stuff. But, of course, it really, um, the riches are coming from the trade. And, of course, any city where the ruling classes have plenty of money and wealth to throw around. It doesn't take long before they want to do something a bit more interesting than just buy more stuff. So it's, it's very quickly, Timbuktu becomes a cultural 
centre for West Africa. A, a scholarly centre? And a scholarly centre. So what you're saying is what we've got there in West Africa mm. is equivalent to, say, Florence, Alexandria or Constantinople when it comes to libraries and, 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 re- exactly. and, and, and scholars. Wow. Exactly. In terms of the, of the Islamic world, yeah. the Timbuktu is your Constantinople or your, or your Florence. Exactly, Mikey. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, as I said, you've got the Mali Empire, you've got emperors, and um, we've already mentioned uh, Mansa Ma- Musa, but there's also people like Askew Muhammad I, you know, they, they live in this sort of prime time golden age and Timbuktu flourishes. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an idea just how much it flourishes, Mike. This is actually from Leo Africanus' oh, so book the, itself. This okay? is your mate Leo Africanus yeah. des- describing this part of the world. The rich king of Tombotu, so that's Timbuktu, Timbuktu. okay, mm-hmm. um, hath many plates and scepters of gold, some whereof weigh 1,300 pounds. All right. He hath always 3,000 horsemen and a great store of doctors, judges, priests and other learned men that are bountifully maintained at the king's cost and charges. And we all know this because Leo wrote it down because he saw it. That's right, yeah. So he, he went travelling. Um, you talked about Berthies and Explore at the beginning. Yeah. Yes, he went travelling with his dad and also as a dip- diplomat. When, look, he probably didn't go everywhere all over Africa. He didn't go to Southern Africa, but you certainly went to Timbuktu. But also, it's something you, you actually talked about before when we did Marco Polo. Mm. Yeah, the explorer stroke diplomat, it, it's not a new thing. That's right, exactly. And he He's the epitome of that, really, Mikey, and um, and that's why his book is so widely read because it's the perfect combination, isn't it? Yeah. Now, so when it, looking at Timbuktu, yeah. um, we talked about the wealth, talked about the culture. Um, we've got these madrasas um, that get built. Um, you've got the Jingu Bear, you've got the Sidi Yahe, you've got the Sankore. But w- what modern scholars call Timbuktu University, if you if you like, right? Um, uh, and they become the centre. They attract more interest, more wealth, more scholars. Yeah. And uh, it goes from a, a city of 10,000 in the 13th century to a city of 50,000 uh, by the 16th century, 25,000 of which yeah. are the students at the madrasa and at the university. So, so what you're saying, apart from being rich and you know, a trade centre, mm. Timbuktu is a college town. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a bit like Canberra. Armadale on the street. Yeah, Armadale, yeah. And it's so successful that you know this, the real symbols of wealth, even for the merchants becomes their you know, literacy, books, manuscripts, and because the Islamic world, of course, believes that you know you're, these books don't just symbolize wealth and power, but also divine blessing. So Timbuktu becomes the center of the book trade of the whole of Islamic world, um, and the libraries and the bookshops and the books and the manuscripts rival anything else to be found on the planet at that time. But you're missing one ingredient, mate. Ah, yes. Ingredient. yes, yeah, no, well, well, yes, you see that one up nicely, in, mate. Which is yes, salt. The ingredient, salt. Well salt. done, thank you, Mikey. Okay, now, these days we think of salt as being a bit common. It's around, you know. Yeah, everywhere, yeah. But, but, you have to remember for centuries, for centuries, thousands of years, salt was incredibly important. Incredibly expensive. In fact, we can trace salt production to around about the end of the Neolithic era. Yep. Um, but here's the thing, and you talk about Timbuktu and salt. Mm. It was so important that... You either became a big city through trading salt or you mm. had access to salt. Now, mm. everyone likes to t- talk about Salzburg, mm. you know, the famous salt city. Salt mines, yeah. But give another example. Go on. Um, Solnestata. It's in modern Bulgaria. 
Okay. And it's believed to be the oldest thing we could recognise as a town in Europe. Bulgaria, okay. Yeah, yeah through, through archaeologists. The name means salt works. It thrived ah. from about 4700 to 4200 BCE. Mm-hmm. But the amount of gold artefacts found there show, that, show its wealth. And it mm. traded salt all through the Balkans. Because remember, you just didn't need salt for tasting, mate. No. You needed to preserve preserving, food. Preserving, yeah, preserving meat. And of meat. course, what does an army need? Yes. It needs preserved food. Yes. Uh, which brings me to the Romans. Oh, yeah. Okay, here's... A, oh, so, oh, yeah, go on, go on. I think I know where you're going. Go on. Yeah, well, it's a common misconception. Mm. People think we get the word salary mm. from the Latin for salt. Salary. Mm. Well, we do, but the misconception is that people believe that the Roman soldiers were paid in paid salt. Paid in salt, yeah. Now, what it actually means is the first thing they would have bought was salt. Yes. So the money quickly became salt. Yes. And the other word we get from the Romans and salt? Mm. Salad. Salad. Well, it's sort of a bastardization through the French of the Roman phrase for salted greens. And the reason why it was so important to salt the greens, mm-hmm. a chef told me this once. Go on. And it's, it's pretty important. This is, this is why a salad always tastes better at a restaurant mm-hmm. than it does at home. Okay. Cold food needs more seasoning. Ah. So he told me that if I was ever making a salad dressing, just make it taste Put like a bit more salt on then the you, top. Then you think it actually needs. Now that's one of the great myths that um, that built up around Timbuktu, actually, was mm. that salt was worth its weight in gold. Mm. Um, and because what would happen in the Sahara, as you said, Mike, you could, sometimes you could mine it, sometimes you could dig it up, sometimes you could use the sea and you could evaporate it and collect sea salt. But in the Sahara, what they used to do was the dried desert lake beds they'd let those let the water evaporate then they'd scrape the salt off and they'd and they'd have these salt works called sebka um that's it, cool yeah and they and they would great name for a heavy metal band <laughs> they they'd boil up the crystals they boil up the, the the salt crust produce pure salt then mold it and uh, uh, there's some lovely pictures of this yeah, of hang the, on, yeah, yeah, yeah i think i might have seen those pictures mate yes redefine uh, lovely yeah okay well look three foot long yeah. <laughs> they're tapered cylinders and yes unfortunately they do look a little bit like a phallus um but from the nile to the atlas mountains you know for hundreds and hundreds of years starting probably 800 bc hmm. um Sahara was producing salt and the regions like um, in, in Libya and in Tunisia, they'd be selling them up to the ports like Safax and making a lot of money. But the problem is yeah. with salt, you know, salt's very bulky, isn't it? Obviously, my heavy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of traders would use ships or boats yeah. or barges if they could, but obviously in the desert you can't do that. So, nah. so they started off using oxen, funnily enough, and horses in the, in the original time. Right. But the big breakthrough came... With of course the camels, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. yeah, because the camels were domesticated in the Middle East, probably uh, around let's say the third century. Well, certainly the third century camels have started being used right. to cross the Sahara. And once you've got the camels on board, of course they can do much longer distances. Oh. So now all these little small lakes, these small regions, everything coming through Timbuktu. Here's a fun fact about the camel, mate. Yep. Yeah. Do you know where the oldest camel bones on earth were found? Arabia, North America. North America. Yeah, okay, that's when you know, all the continents are all jammed together. Ah, you know, right. Stop the land bridges. You camels get, originated. It, it looks North like it looks, like it looks like the camels actually started in, in North America, then spread through the world, but right. died out rather quickly up there. Well, it was certainly good news for Timbuktu that they arrived because by Timbuktu's golden age, you'd have two of the most enormous camel caravans leaving Timbuktu 
each year, one in late March, one in early November. And we're talking several thousands of camels, Mikey. Wow. And they would go, it would take three weeks to go all the way up through the Sahara, up to the coast from Timbuktu, and then three weeks all the way back again. They'd be controlled by the old nomadic um, Berebish tribe, which is an Arabic-speaking tribe in the Sahara. And each camel would carry yeah. four to five 30 kilo slabs or <laughs> phalluses yes. uh, of salt. Well, so, yeah. um, so you're talking about like 150 kilos of salt on each camel. Per camel, yeah. yeah. And, that, yeah and if there's thousands of camels, you can imagine how much salt. Wow. And that's why Timbuktu becomes one of the greatest wealthiest cities in the world for over 300 years yeah, until <laughs> the Europeans course, arrive. The Europeans arrive and as sadly as usual the rest is history. So in this episode, we've been talking about Timbuktu mm-hmm. and its unbelievable role in not just African history, but in world history. That's right, Mikey. And that's why Timbuktu really was emblematic you know, yeah. of, of its period. Um, you've got the salt, you've got the trade, you've got the learning, you've got Islam. And you've got, as you can imagine, in those libraries and bookshops, you had some of the most priceless manuscripts that had ever Survive, you know, even after the fall of Timbuktu, even when it was no longer um, useful, uh, even when the Europeans had, had, you know, had bypassed it, if you like, yeah. what they would do, the Timbuktu locals, they would keep those manuscripts, they'd keep them alive, keep those books alive, they'd hide them in their cellars, they'd hide them in between the mud walls of the mosques. Oh, oh, I'm no fancy archaeologist, but I'm imagining mm. these would be pretty good conditions to keep yeah. manuscripts. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like very, very dry air, yeah. isn't it, you yeah. know, for the Sahara. Yeah. Or sometimes they'd even bury them in the sand. Yeah. So these collections, these libraries, they survived even after Timbuktu um, went into its long decline. And, and basically ended up becoming a metaphor for somewhere really far away. <laughs> yeah, that's well, right. what it is. Yeah. Which at the beginning of this century spelt good news, because yeah. of course that meant it's one of the key tourist destinations in Africa. Because it had been so brilliantly preserved because of its isolation. But, as I said, unfortunately it is emblematic, not just of history, but also of the modern times, because in 2013, oh, yeah. yeah, the Islamic separatists and um, the Al-Qaeda affiliates, they overran much of uh, Timbuktu, uh, and many of the libraries, many of the manuscripts, many of the books were destroyed. See, that is a global tragedy. But it's not all bad news. A happy ending. Let's call it a silver lining. You see, just as for all those centuries the locals kept the manuscripts safe out of the reach of looters and treasure hunters, so when the terrorists attacked, uh, many of the most valuable pieces were hidden again, preserved. Timbuktu survived. To be rediscovered by future generations. Just like your man, Leo Africanus. Precisely. Now, mate, one last thing before we finish... How exactly did he get such a cool... Was that like his publishing name? <laughs> his pen name, his yeah. His pen name? Well, almost. He's more of a nickname, to be honest, Mikey. Because, yeah, like we said, he, he was born um, Al-Wazan Al-Fazi, yeah? um, but he converted to Christianity under the Pope, so he took the Pope's name, Leo. Oh. So they, he gave himself the name Johannes Leo de' Medici's. Um, but, of course, his book became so famous, everyone just know, knew him as the African, which was Leo Africanus. Ah, right. OK, folks, that's the end of the episode. Uh, mm. If there's anything more you'd like to know about Leo Africanus, don't forget, you know, drop us a line. Yeah, anything about Timbuktu, West Africa. And also, don't forget, you've got any good hints for salty recipes, I do like my food a little over-seasoned. So please, drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. 
Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. Which brings us to, and funnily enough, Paul, you've touched on this before. What, with Leo? No, no, when you were talking about those Timbuktu caravans and their salty dicks. <laughs> right. Well, it got me thinking, because next up, I was going to tell you all about some salty dogs. Oh, the cocktails? No, but now that you mention it, if you've got some grapefruit juice, you can, you can bring some along. No, but seriously, Paul, I want to talk about buccaneers on the high seas. Ooh, and then we can have a couple of salty dogs after. Perfect. Perfect.